welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today with me, I have a legend from the strength training world, Mike Robertson. You can find all of his content at robertsontrainingsystems.com, and today we're going to dive into the R7 system. And this R7 system is basically a way that you can literally set up your training. It's, it's, it's designed as a step-by-step sequence to make sure that you're training effectively, efficiently, and avoiding all injuries at all costs. Um, we go through each part of the R7 system, which is release, reset, readiness, reactive, resistance, resiliency, and recovery. Um, and we touch on a few random topics of coaching and program design and stuff throughout. Uh, but Mike Robinson is somebody I met almost 10 years ago. So it was about nine years ago. He came into a workshop at our gym. I was able to grab dinner with him and some of the coaches. And uh, I've watched and learn from his content for literally the last decade, just trying to absorb from him because he's literally been in the strength world for this long training, pro, college, recreational athletes, everyday people, everybody on the sun. He's done every part of training inside this industry that you can imagine. So his experience goes way beyond most people. He's a wealth of knowledge. And a lot of what he talks about is not only science-based and really informative, but it's practically applicable. Like it's real people shit that you do in the trenches, which is what I love so much about him. Um, So I enjoyed this conversation so much. I think you guys are going to too. We dive into this R7 system and it's going to really just set you up for some of the best training that you'll ever do. And you'll notice some of the key things that he talks about are things that I've been recommending for a long time in my training systems when I talk about activation and priming and the compound and then uh, the finisher and all these kind of things throughout my session parasympathetic stuff to, to create better recovery. A lot of it came from him and a few other people that really pioneered this stuff way back. And that's how I developed it. So you guys are going to hear from somebody who has taught me unbelievable amounts, uh, that have influenced my coaching and therefore influence you because you guys listen to this for, for as much info as you can. So without any more ranting or hyping up, I'm going to get right into the podcast and, uh, and yeah, we'll dive into this R7 system. So without any further ado, the one and only Mike Robertson. All right, Mike, I'm excited to have you on the podcast uh, for a few reasons. One, because the tables are turned now and I get to interview right. you uh, after I was just on yours. Uh, but like we talked about in the last one, man, I've used so many of your principles for so long. And the main topic we're going to talk about today uh, was one of the first like systems I really learned as somebody who wrote programs. And I really started getting yep. into program design because, you know, when I first started, I, I luckily I was in the right with the right people and everything, I started learning good fundamentals. Um, but I mean, when I first started working, I didn't even write the programs. Luca, the owner right. of the gym, wrote the programs and just made sure I knew how to coach them, right? So I was like studying and studying and studying, and your R7 system was one of the things that was really big. Um, you came and taught it, and I really, really focused on that. And I've actually since done a lot of my own programming that is based on very similar principles. So I'm excited to get through this because so many people need to hear this. Uh, but before we get into R7, tell us who you are. Who is Mike Robertson? What's your backstory? Why do you do what you do today? Yeah, so I will do my best to keep this brief. Uh, I feel like it gets a little longer every year, the the more that I've done this. But I like to joke around that I've seen basically every nook and cranny of the fitness industry. Uh, I started off just as a young guy, like I was a basketball player, wanted to find whatever I could do to give myself a competitive advantage on the court. So I very clearly remember this is the mid 90s. So it's not like today where every middle school, every high school has a weight room. Like we didn't even get a high school weight room until I was a sophomore in high school. Right. So I just remember we got all this like selectorized equipment and we had like another room that was basically just like all this hand-me-down strength training equipment, right. From Ball State University. So we're doing the dumbest stuff on the planet over this summer, right. We're doing sets of a hundred on like the leg extension and the leg curl. Um, You know, we're, bench pressing three times a week. So we're doing all these totally ridiculous things. But the beauty of being a total newbie is that you can do just about anything and see progress, right? So over the course of this summer, like six, eight weeks, I start to notice as we're going into open gyms, like, man, like this is making an impact on my game. Like there's more range on my jump shot. There's a little bit more zip on my passes. But I think the coolest thing for me was we go back to my freshman year I was very undersized like I was a late bloomer and I remember like my first basketball practice just getting destroyed 
by these upperclassmen, right? They're just physically so much bigger, 6'4", 6'5", well over 200 pounds. I was probably like 5'3", and like a buck 30. So I'm just getting destroyed, right? But as I start working out, and these guys are coming back over the summer, it's like all of a sudden, like they're not pushing me around anymore. I'm like, well, this is like cool. Like I can hold my own in the post. You're like, these guys aren't pushing me around. And as I continued to evolve and over that next year, continue to get more and more into lifting, like the tables were truly turned on them that next summer, because now I'm pushing them around and I'm physically imposing my will on them. So I'm like, okay, there's something to this. And I always knew I was into the working outside. I was always into the sports side, but never really knew how those could come together. So I go to Ball State, do my whole four years. And I always joke around over those four years, I trained exactly one person. That was myself. Uh, you know, and so I'm coming out and technically I have a degree. I passed the CSCS and I had no clue how to train people. Didn't still to that time, didn't know what I wanted to do. So I applied for master's, a master's program there, like the biomechanics degree, but it really changed that summer. It was the summer of 2000. I got an internship with the athletic weight room at Ball State. And so literally my first day in there, I could have told you like, this is probably what I want to do for the rest of my life. Because I got to merge the two things I was most passionate about, right? I love lifting weights. I love sports. Now you're telling me I can do this every day and get paid for it? Like, it was a no-brainer. So I spent two years basically living a double life. I spent all my free time in the weight room as an assistant strength coach. Uh, the other half of my time was spent working on my graduate degree. And I actually had a graduate assistantship through the research lab at Ball State. So I'm touching all those bases. And when I'm coming out, I'm like, oh, well, I just want to be a D1 strength coach. Like, this is it. It's what I want to do. And put my application literally across the United States of America. Got no hits. No, none. Like, none. So took a job in Fort Wayne at a place called the Athletic Performance Center, which sounds like super dope and really just wasn't super dope. <laughs> I was the back of a chiropractic clinic. So I didn't get to work with as many athletes as I would have liked. If I did, they were injured. But that three-year time frame was really important for me because I spent a lot of time brushing up on, at the time we called it corrective exercise, but I learned about that. I learned about anatomy. I learned about assessments. So that time was really valuable for me. I started writing for T Nation at that point in time and just realized like, look, I am not the most employable human being on the planet. So I did my three years there, moved down to Indianapolis, did another three years doing one-on-one -on -one in home personal training. So now I'm working with like some of the most elite business people in Indianapolis, people that are, you know, literally, literally worth nine figures or more. But I knew this isn't for me either. Like this isn't my long-term play. And so in 2008, Bill Hartman and I joined forces. We opened IFAST and that's, basically been my life for the last 13 years. I have IFAST, which is the brick and mortar gym where we train people, do physical therapy, all that stuff. I've got Robertson training systems where I do consulting, online programming, the podcast, the content creation. So kind of like you, I've got my hands in both worlds, but yeah, I, again, just coming full circle on that, like I've seen it all, right? I've done one-on-one, -on -one, small group, large group. I've worked in gen pop, rehab, uh, elite training environments. Like I've just kind of been everywhere and seen a little bit of everything. So I think that gives me a unique perspective on just our industry as a whole. Yeah. I love that, man. I think one thing that sticks out to me that I appreciate about people like you, and I like to think myself too, is that so much of that experience was pre-social media. And, and the reason mm -hmm. I say that for people listening is because nowadays there's so much, uh, posturing of, of expertise in, in coaching really online. Right. And I think that yep. back then you had to really show up and produce results for a long period of time before you had the credibility. So yeah, if you were going to be successful at this and, and known for this before social media, like you really had to know your shit and do it well for a long period of time. <laughs> you, know, you had to produce results. And, and I always respect being able to talk to people who, I mean, you made it happen well before social media even hit at, at a high level, which I love. Um, a question for you outside of what we were going to talk about today is how, how important do you think personal training with people is for young coaches today? I think there's a lot of people who want to jump into online coaching and I found so much value of that person to person interaction. And obviously you have too, cause you've yeah. done it for so long. There are lessons you'll learn in personal training that you can't get anywhere else. 
Uh, and I knew that like just doing pure one-on-one wasn't going to be my thing forever. But I always joke and, and like people don't understand this, but when I was doing rehab, that's kind of in a one-on-one environment. When I did personal training in Indianapolis one-on-one, you find out really quickly how long a one minute rest period is when you're trying to have a conversation with somebody you have nothing in common with. Like that is a long period of time. So you learn all of these people skills that you wouldn't pick up on otherwise. Like texting is not the same. Like, and there's nothing wrong with texting or using tech to try and be more efficient, but like having a conversation with somebody and trying to figure out like, okay, what motivates this person? Why are they doing this? You know, and not everybody wants to have six pack abs. Some people just want to be healthier or, you know, be able to go on walks with their significant other. Like everybody's got their own reason for doing stuff. But I think that one-on-one training gives you the people skills necessary to be successful because look, empathy is a big part of this. uh, And a lot of people discredit it or don't think it doesn't matter as much because it's more of a soft skill. It's not cool, like writing a program or giving the best coaching cue, but being able to empathize with somebody and understand like why they're not having success or the other things that may be holding them back. Like that's what helps you form a connection, form a bond so that you can take that person that maybe would just use you for a couple of weeks and make them a lifetime client. Mm. Yeah. uh, Emotional intelligence was probably one of the most helpful subjects I learned for that exact reason. And the cool thing about what you just broke down too, is none of that had to actually do with training. Right. That was all about communication and working with people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's so important in what you do, right? Like not to say it's not important in training, but it's maybe even more important in nutrition because there's so many emotional pieces to that. Mm. You know, training for a lot of people is something you do three or four days a week. Nutrition and eating are things you do every single day. Yeah. So like it's even more important in your world, but like it's one of those things where you can't devalue it. Yeah. And I think there are certain people that like, that's all they want to talk about because maybe they don't have some of the hard skills necessary, but I think the best coaches find a way to find a blend of hard skills and soft skills that allow them to be successful for the long haul. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, man. Um, One thing that helped me when I got into the online space was I actually got better at programming because I had to have things more well written out because I could do more stuff on the fly when I had people seeing me all the time and I had a lot of information in my head. And then I was like, okay, I have to really put this on paper for extended amount of weeks for them to understand it's a different game. And something that you didn't mention that I know you're big on as well is is just the cueing aspect, which is strictly for training versus nutrition. But like somebody who has coached a hundred plus people through a squat is way, is going to do way better for you programming a squat in a workout because they understand what comes before the squat, what comes after squat, what you did the day before the squat day, how you're doing the squat, what cues you're thinking yeah. about. In the squat. Like, all those things matter so much. Whereas people online just write squat and it's like, oh, there's just so much more complexity to it. <laughs> well, go to social media or go, just go to Google right now and type in squat and see yeah. how many interpretations of that exercise you get. Yeah. Right. I legitimately, there's probably millions of articles in videos written about the squat. And some people will tell you knees over toes, toes straight forward, toes out, uh, back squat, front squat, goblet squat, reaching squat. Should your back be neutral? Should it flex in the bot? Like, yeah. If you haven't seen all those things and know what you want to get out of it, good luck, man. Yeah. Like, good luck. So that's why for me, when it comes to programming, like, it's all about bullet point cues. Mm. I want it to be short. I want it to be sweet because the other thing is too, if somebody's on rep eight or nine of 10 and they're working, they're not thinking about three to five different cues that you gave them. Maybe they're, they're dialed in on like yeah. one or two. So you got to be really sharp and you got to be really concise with your cues for sure. Yeah. hundred percent agree. Um, okay. Let's, let's dive into our seven method because I think, uh, this, this is a really cool system and I think people can get a lot out of this. This changed the game for me. Um, I often talk to people about how I go through programming and, and we talk about like, I go through an activation phase, priming phase, like all these different things. And it really is, it's an adopted version of what you, you've built, which was cool. Cause when we reconnected, I was able to kind of look at some of the stuff I've done and be like, man, this really did. A lot of this came from our seven method. You're the first person <laughs> that brought something like this to my attention I mean, how long ago did you make this? Because I want to say it was almost a decade ago when I learned it. 
Yeah, it was like 2012 is when we really started pushing it out there, I feel like. Okay. So. Yeah, almost a decade. So that's crazy. But, um, okay, first let's like just break down all the different R's, and then we can just go one by one if that's cool with you. Um, yep. And did you did you absolutely intentionally make them R's because of Robertson, or was this just a coincidental thing? No. No, it was a coincidental thing. The real reason we started using R7 in the first place was when we opened iFast, it was just Bill and I. And, you know, dudes like you and I, or your listeners, we might love to nerd out on like programming and X's and O's and like how much volume is optimal. Like our clients don't care about that. So if you go back to when it was just Bill and I running the gym and just Bill and I coaching and writing programs, like the technology and the jargon that we used made zero sense to our clients. So like the first thing on your, your exercise sheet would be soft tissue mobilization. Like legitimately, those are the words that we use. So to Bill and I, it's like, oh yeah, you foam roll, right? You get on a lacrosse ball or stick or whatever. Our clients are like, I don't know what the hell that is. So the big reason that we started using it in the first place was just to give people an understanding of what they should be doing or feeling each step of the way. Mm. So like the seven R's are release, reset, readiness, reactive, resistance, resiliency, and recovery. And basically what they are like landmarks that you should see in most of your programs. So instead of using soft tissue mobilization, which nobody knows what the hell that means, release is, oh, there's like this emotive response to it. It's like, oh yeah, I jump on that roller and I roll on the outside of my thigh and it hurts like hell for a minute. But then when I get off, my knee feels better and I've got more range of motion. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So like each step, it's a very common almost everyday word that they would know what it means. So releases your foam rolling resets uh, could be breathing activities. It could be correctives. However you want to frame that these days, I don't care, but a reset is just something to try and get your body in a more biomechanically efficient position. We know most of our clients don't walk in with perfect posture and perfect movement. So we want to try and impact that positively before they train. So we reset them readiness, just like it sounds like we warm up. Reactive is our power and explosive based work. And this is something I used to catch a lot of flack for, but like even our gen pop clients do reactive stuff. Uh, you know, we've got an 80 year old doctor who's obsessed with playing golf. You know, the guy's been retired for like 10 years, but he's going to go out and golf. So, Hey, if you're going to go out and try and swing a golf club as hard as you can. You can come in here and you can throw a med ball mm-hmm. as hard as you can. So anyway, R4 is reactive. Our explosive work, R5 resistance, pretty self-explanatory. R6 is our resiliency or our conditioning. And then R7 is our recovery. And that's something we try and and preach to our clients and athletes as well. It's like, hey, look, do all this great work in the gym and then do something for two to three minutes at the end, whether it's a reset, whether it's a cool down, a breathing activity, something that's going to kickstart the recovery process so that when you walk out of the gym, you're already on the right track for having a next session that's successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to break this down piece by piece. But one of the things I love about it is the um, the reactive and the recovery aspect because I think a lot uh, – what people get mistaken with a lot is is how much neurologically speaking there is such a neurological um, focus in training that they don't realize I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. And so the recovery aspect, when you're training hard, cortisol's up, adrenaline's up, like – being able to have that proper cool down to just bring your system down, your, your nervous system to a parasympathetic mode before you leave and go eat and do all those things is really, really intelligent, especially for athletes. Um, and the reactive one is funny that you got slack for that because that's been big. And I remember the guy that I, uh, Tim Vagan, who I went to school with, he, he used to always say the same kind of stuff. And he would talk about one of the leading causes of death for elderly is falling and breaking their hip or something. And if you can train reactiveness, they might be able to catch themselves on the way down from that fall. So like even stuff like that, people forget. So we do a lot of, uh, safe explosive work, which I know we'll get into in a sec. And I think that's something that a lot of people need to really understand. You don't need to be doing barbell snatches for this necessarily, but, um, before all of our strength training sessions. So I'm, I'm a huge fan of that one, but let's start with release, um, break down like obviously foam rolling, but also like, what is the benefit? There's been, it's gotten a lot of flack over the last couple of years with some research and then it's kind of came back and then it was like, Oh wait, no, it is good. Then it's like, no, it's stupid. And what is it? (laughs) Right. Right. So, okay. So first off I've given up explaining or totally trying to understand some of these whys, 
right? Because I think there, there are multiple camps out there. The other thing that bothers me, and I don't want to get on this tangent, but just about research in general is when I was coming up, and I'm going to sound really old for saying this, but I felt like research when I was coming up was less biased than it is now. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people out there in science now where they have biases that they're trying to use science to prove Yeah. versus like, hey, what actually works? Yeah. So tangent put back aside. Uh, For me, release is just something that helps kind of your body calm down a little bit. You know, originally we thought, oh, we're breaking down scar tissue and adhesions. Like that's what we thought in like 2007, 2008. I think we know it doesn't do that now, but there's some sort of nervous system response, right? Like I can't tell you how many times somebody's come in with anterior knee pain and they foam roll their quads and maybe work on their calves a little bit and their knee pain's gone. Now, I didn't fix anything per se mechanically. Uh, I didn't address the underlying stuff, but the fact of the matter is they feel better and they can train. Mm -hmm. So the way I think about a lot of these things is it's a window. So if your window is like open, like a crack, that doesn't give you a lot of margin for error. So my job in a lot of these warm-up activities, whether it's the release or the reset is to open that window. And so it's kind of like Bill uses the term, like a window of adaptation. So open that window a little bit more. So, hey, look, if I can get you in better positions, if I can get that that knee to chill out, then maybe we can go in the squat and do some isometrics to help it heal. Or we can get into some positions that'll help it lengthen and relax a little bit more. So that's what I use the release section for is like, hey, let's find some of those problematic areas. Let's try and get them to loosen up a little bit. And generally for me, it's no more than two or three minutes. Like I, I used to have, the day I realized I was too invested in foam rolling again, this is like 2008, but I had one guy that worked with me religiously. He was going into the secret service. So it's kind of like a bud school or something like that. It's a very intense physical program. And I kid you not every day, this guy had a different issue. It was his knee, his hip, his shoulder, his back. So I wrote his program and I realized I had 13 areas of his body that he was foam rolling. And I'm like, man, we got to find a way to pare this down. So I think there's merit and value in it, but it's one of those things where if you keep having to add stuff, you probably need to look at something else or something bigger in your program to address before you just keep layering on more foam rolling activities. Yeah. I love that. I think uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I believe there was some kind of research that came out not too long ago showing that like temporary uh, it's obviously they foam rolled before a session. So everything is temporary. Like you said, we're not, yeah, fixing for sure. somebody, but, um, it, it did increase range of motion during that session. Yeah. Yeah. It's a transient thing. Right. So, and again, this is what people like want to debate about and they're like, Oh, well it's transient. Well, okay. I don't care if it's transient. Like we're training now. Yeah. Like there's other things that I'm doing in the session that I hope will have a longer lasting or more <laughs> impactful effect. But if you work with high level athletes, sometimes it's like, Hey, look, I just got to get you loose enough and get you feeling good enough so that you can train today or that you can get on the court or you can get on the soccer field. Like that's, what's most important. So again, this is where sometimes like you gotta, you gotta dive in and drill down a little bit more than just like, Oh, this scientist says this, it's like, okay, but what does this mean in a practical sense to you or to the people you're working with? Yeah. I think sometimes research too, they like, it's almost like they're doing the research to try to debunk something because they don't like it. And it's like, you know, yes. You don't have to do that. Or the, the participants are irrelevant. Like if you're foam rolling sedentary individuals, okay, I don't care what you see. Like give me an right. athlete who has really tight quads and painful knees and he needs a squat. Like let's now let's do something. But um, right. before we move on to, to reset, just so the, the people listening have some kind of application, is there a way you recommend most people? Like are you like, hey, hit these three trigger points and you're probably going to get most of what you need or anything like that? Yeah, so I always recommend like, If you have no idea where to start, these would be the five areas I would probably go to first. I'd probably go calves. I'd probably go quads. I'd go glutes, pecs, and lats. And like those five, if you hit those five areas, you're probably going to be pretty good. Like you can get into some nitty gritty stuff, but man, quads and calves are great. If you have any sort of knee issue, Um, calves are great for loosening up your ankles Uh, A lot of people have just like general shoulder stuff. So they're your pecs and lats and everybody wants to talk about hip mobility and how important the hips are from a range of motion perspective. Well, there you go. 
you know, whether it's loosening up the hips or decreasing back pain, a lot of times you just foam roll around the hips pre-session. Like it's amazing how much better you move and feel. Mm. Do you think that, uh, I mean, when you hit, when you say those body parts, I'm thinking calves and helping your ankles, people don't move enough, don't walk enough. And I think of hips and low back and lats. I'm like thinking everybody's just sitting and rounding forward constantly. Is that, do you think yeah. that's why you're hitting these points? Just people's posture is shit now. <laughs> that's a big part of it. And it's also, those are some of the easiest areas uh, for us to attack, right? Like a lot of people love to like, they, they hit their quads um, or they have strong quads because they're like, you know, big anterior pelvic tilt, everything's pushed forward. So they're on their calves and their quads all the time. Again, like you alluded to hips are stiff because they sit all the time. Pecs and lats are two of the biggest muscle groups that people love to, to hit in the gym. Right. And, you know, quite frankly, a lot of guys love to, to get heavy, but they don't always do some of the accessory stuff to keep their shoulders feeling good. So that, that's why I always come back to those five. It's like you preserve your ball and socket joints. It allows kind of all those big key areas to move and feel better. So those are the five. If I have nothing else to go on, I'll say, Hey, just start with these five and let me know what you think. Love that. That's perfect, man. Let's uh, let's move on to reset. What is this and, and how are you having people do it? Yeah. So back in the day, like when I was writing for T nation and all that, Eric Cressy and I used to talk a lot about correctives, right? So let's do a hip flexor stretch and a glute bridge or uh, you know, some sort of glute meat activation. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like that stuff still works. Um, generally for me now, I think of a reset as something that's a little bit more all encompassing. And so a reset to me is something that helps put your client or athlete in a better biomechanical position. So in a lot of cases for me, it's some sort of breathing activity, right? Cause a lot of times people struggle to move because they struggle to push air into certain spaces. So let me give you an example. Um, if you slouch your shoulders down as far as you can, right? Like really kyphotic, bad posture, and you try and internally rotate your shoulders. So if you've got your shoulder, just kind of like you would throw a baseball and you try and follow through, you've got like no range of motion. Well, this can be a problem because internal rotation is important, whether you want to bench press weight or throw a ball with your kids, whatever the case may be. So you could say, oh, well, they have a, a postural problem, or you can say, oh, or they can't fill up their chest walls with air. So for that person, you know, maybe I am going to do some foam rolling for their chest, try and get that to loosen up. But then I'm going to do a specific breathing activity that drives air into that space. And it allows it to expand so that I recapture that range of motion. Mm. Okay. So it's, it seems like it's a subtle shift and you can do those things, right? Like if I do a hip flexor stretch, you know, and I'm trying to get the front side of my hip to loosen up a little bit. Hey, instead of just holding it for time, Maybe I'm going to hold it for breaths and I'm going to change my cueing just a little bit. But for me, it all comes down to, I want to set a better biomechanical starting position so that as we get into that session, they're moving and feeling better. And I think for too long, and especially when I was coming up, people just train through pain, right? They're like, oh, well, yeah, my knee is sore today or my shoulder is sore today. And, you know, look, we all have off days. Like, I'm not saying you don't have off days, but hey. What if you're constantly working to improve how your body moves? Because for me, it's not about just banging weights now. It's like, I want to be able to lift and be healthy and move the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think some of these breathing and, you know, resets, correctives, whatever you want to call them, they come into play because it's all about not just thinking, hey, I want to perform at a high level in the short term. Trust me, I had those days too, but it's like, I want to perform at a high level for as long as possible. So I, the better I can align my body, the more, the more efficient I'm going to be for as long as I want to train. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I have a quick thing to say about it and then I have a question on it. Um, yeah. I remember I want to, it was either you or Eric Cressy, both of you guys came out and did a, a separate workshop with us. And mm -hmm. that was the first time I learned about breathing. And I'm, I was going to ask you about PRI breathing, if that's like yeah. what we're talking about yeah. here, um, which I can't remember what actually that stands for. But um, I remember that being really cool because seeing clients with low back issues or achy shoulders as they're bench pressing or anything, I would do this stuff with and they'd feel better. Right. But at the yeah. time I was 20, 21. So yeah. 
I feel great. And I was like, I don't need to do this shit. And, it, <laughs> and it's funny right? to me now because now I notice so much more. And so for people listening, even if you don't have pain, like going through a system like this to prevent is actually really, really required. And, and I had the mindset of like, well, I'm starting so young and I'm training properly with the, with the right guys. I'm not going to have to worry about it. But I mean, if you're putting weight on your body in the gym, over the course of a decade, like it's just going to happen, yeah. you know? And now I have to crawl into this little princess tent that I can't fit in, but my daughter insists that I go in there with her. And then within <laughs> three seconds, she's like, actually, let's go over here. And I'm crawling back out. And I started really yeah. realizing like, holy shit, this is hard <laughs> to get this yeah. low and move. Um, and I even, uh, my, my media guy took a picture of me squatting the other day and I looked at it and I was like, oh shit, I'm shifting to the right. So I started, mm-hmm. went to, I was at my physio and we were talking about like different stuff at the PT and I was like, there's another thing I got to like focus on. So it's important, right. but, um, with the breathing, uh, it makes sense. And I think it's, it's actually super powerful because I've seen it work. Um, this is basically PRI breathing, I believe. What does that stand for? Um, if this is that, and then also yeah. how, how do people really execute it? Cause isn't there a, a technique to how you're breathing? Yeah. So, so I think PRI did a great job of popularizing it. Uh, and that's why people know it is that, but the fact of the matter is everybody knows how to breathe. What people struggle with is driving air into certain areas of their body, right? And this is like a really loaded topic. We could take an entire podcast just on this. Um, But what you generally find is you have some people like your big barrel chested type person. Imagine, you know, the guy that's like 285 pound jacked bodybuilder, powerlifter, whatever. They're more of what we would call or, or what Bill would call wide ISA or wide infrasternal angle. So the way I describe this person is, really big, really strong, struggle, uh, struggles to rotate, right? So they're like a walking fire hydrant. Um, so these people, they're, they're what we would describe as an exhalation bias. So they're used to creating force. So these people actually need to learn how to inhale again. And that's what's counterintuitive because so much stuff has been pushed over the years. Oh, I got to learn how to exhale. Got to learn how to exhale. Well, maybe, but a lot of guys, guys that lift heavy things a lot, need to actually learn how to inhale. And so that's counterintuitive for a lot of people. So you've got kind of that end of the spectrum and then you got the other end. And these are the people that I would describe as uh, like your really thin, tall women, uh, people that have what are called a narrow ISA. So these people are actually more of an inhalation bias. So like these person, this is the person in sports. If you've ever watched uh, certain low force producers in sports, this is the person that like goes down into a squat and can just sit in the bottom comfortably. Or it's not great for sports, but they, they go into a cut and they never come out, right? They're just super slow coming in and out of cuts. So this person needs more of an exhalation bias, right? They need to learn how to exhale. And these are the people that respond incredibly well to weights. So this is why I love training like volleyball players in the weight room, because they're all, they're narrow, they're thin, they're kind of bouncy and elastic. So then you take this person and you teach them how to produce force in a weight room and their numbers go through the roof. So you got these kind of two ends of the spectrum and then your job is to figure out, okay, is this more of like this really big, broad, you know, non-rotating type fellow or is it, you know, kind of more of this narrow, bouncy, elastic type person that doesn't produce force well. And then you figure out which one they are and you try and give them the opposite right? Give them what they're not good at. So they find a little bit more of a happy medium. Got it. And with it, in either way, is it like, so if we're working on inhaling, let's say, um, yep. inhale through the nose, through the mouth, holding it at a certain point, do you have to be in a certain position before you do it? Depending on how to tell where you're tight, I'm assuming is where you want yep. the air to go. Yeah. For a lot of, for a lot of the people that I work with, like if it's inhalation bias, what I'm going to cue them to do. So like, let's say I'm working with you, right? and you struggle to get air into your lower back or your upper back or whatever, I'm going to cue you into a certain position that's advantageous to driving air into the position. But here's a really important point. People want to please you, right? If they're working with you, if you're coaching them. So you have to cue them, look, if you're going to inhale, I only need air in this one target area. And I don't have any preconceived notions as to how big of an inhale that is. So it could only be 10% of your inhale, right? Like if you're really restricted, it might be really hard to breathe into that position. So, hey, we're just going to take a 10% inhale in and then we're going to exhale out. And we're going to work to improve that over time. So it's very targeted. Like I would say before the way we did things, uh, when we were in just like correctives, 
And that's all we did was correctives. It was very much the shotgun approach to this is what people need as a whole versus now it's like a sniper rifle. Mm. Like these are the three areas that you're struggling with where you can't drive air. So that's where we're going to focus our efforts. And that's where we're going to get the most return on our investment. Got it. Um, I, I feel like I remember, I believe it was you talking about sucking through a straw when you're breathing. Does that yeah. sound familiar as like a cue? Yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. So we've done that to limit uh, people's ability to inhale. A lot of times, if you just inhale through your nose, that's enough. Um, but we have cued people to exhale through a straw or through a balloon to really cue yeah. them to get that air out. Because there are some people, they are such a, a massive inhalation bias. It's very hard for them to compress and get all the air out of their body. Mm-hmm. So it's just like lifting a weight, right? If just blowing out isn't enough resistance, I'm going to have you push through a straw or push into a balloon Mm. to give more resistance. Hey guys, I want to take a quick second to shout out the sponsor of this podcast, which is myself. It's my own app, the tailored trainer, which is the simple solution to actually looking like you lift. My goal with the tailored trainer was to do just that. I had countless amount of people coming into our coaching to get nutrition guidance from us and they needed training help as well and I was tired of hearing people tell me I don't look like I lift I'm in the gym hours every week I'm training hard I'm pushing myself I'm sweating my ass off but I don't look like I work out what is the deal and the deal is simple there isn't a periodized plan backing up the effort they are putting in the gym they don't have progressive overload methods and metrics and measurements inside their programming that are going to guide them to the result they're after which is why I wanted to create an app that did that for you not only does it have actually systemized programs that are effective for your goal, for your schedule, for your body type, and for your experience? Because there are tons of programs in there. That's why it's called the tailored trainer, because you can literally tailor your training to your lifestyle and your schedule and your experience level. But it's also going to have the software and the metrics inside to make sure that it's progressive and periodized without you even realizing it. You don't have to do anything, and it is programmed properly to get you to progress, which is why I always tell people, stop aimlessly working out using influencers' Instagram posts and YouTube videos as your plan. Start actually tailoring the training process to you, and you can do that by downloading this app. It's less than $1 a day, and you can head over to tailoredtrainer.net to read more about it, see screenshots of the app live itself, see reviews from some of the people using it, and see a personal letter from myself as to why I created this app in the first place. So once again, head over to tailoredtrainer.net. Now, let's get back into the podcast. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, this is one of the things where I notice with like dead bugs, people will do them and they're like, well, these are just so easy. And they're just kind of like yeah. going back and forth. <laughs> flopping all over the place. And I'm like, if you do it right with breathing, it's very, very difficult because that's the big key with it, right? And it's it's yes. funny because and this goes back to cues and being a personal trainer. I remember not being able to get people like people to do it properly. And I would say like, all right, you're going to suck through like a straw, like breathe in your butt. And they would be like, what? And I'm like, just trust me, just breathe. And, and then like, sure enough, their lower abdomens and they're all around their hips would kind of fill up and they'd, they'd actually feel yeah. it. And I'm like, I know that's yes. weird, but if it worked and it clicked, then Look, run with it. I always tell people, and especially like young coaches, interns, hey man, your goal should be to accumulate as many cues for exercises as possible, Yeah. right? Because you'll probably have three to five that you use all the time. But then you'll have another 20 or 30 for that one person that just doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. And you got to use that cue. And then they're like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Like, oh, I use that cue once in the last 10 years. Yeah. But it works. Yeah. After 27 attempts, you finally get one that works. <laughs> that's right. Um, and sometimes people are like that, man. Yeah. And that's huge too with like online programming because when you write a program and you have, you're able to throw out some cues into the, into the actual program for them to read it makes yep. things click. If you just put back squat, people aren't always going to get exactly what you want them to do throughout that squat. So um, that's super important. All right. So release, reset. Now we're on to readiness. What is this? Yep. Man, this is as straightforward as it comes, right? Like this is our warm up. For a lot of our people, we're going to go into a dynamic warm up. If I'm ever in a team setting, we may do kind of your standard couple laps, get on a bike, whatever, like physiological warm up. And you can break this down and nerd out on it, but like, Physiology is important. Like it's called a warm up. You got to actually get the tissues warm, get the nervous system warm, get the body ready to train. And then I think of it like this like, if our goal in the reset was to optimize position 
now we're starting to take those positions and explore them, but in a more dynamic way. So, hey, if you were doing, let's say you were doing something static, like a hip flexor stretch in R2. Now we're going to take that into a lunge or a world's greatest stretch mm. where there's just more complexity involved in it. So, you know, the readiness portion is pretty straightforward. It's like, hey, let's get them up, get them moving and getting them ready for the training session. Yeah. Dynamic warm up, plain and simple. Yeah. Um, simple. And it's and it's usually the thing that people tend to skip because and, and I'm guilty of this. Because once you get through like release and reset, let's say, now you're like, I want to lift. Yeah. <laughs> it's like another thing yeah. in your way. So, but yeah. like this is where every time I consistently do that after a while, I end up getting injured, especially if I'm lifting heavy and doing things like that. If I'm really yeah. training, like you got to have it in there. And, and look, I'm realistic. So there's certain people where they're either injury prone or they're coming off an injury and I'll give them like 10 or 12 activities here. I know they'll do it. I know they need it. But for if, like, if I was coaching you, I'd give you like four or five really big bang things and be like, just come on, man. Get I'm not done. giving you 10. Yeah. Give me four or five, do what we need to do. And then you can get into your session. So yeah. you got to find those happy mediums. I think that's a good tip too. Cause there's some people who get really, really into like mobility, for example, and they end up yeah. doing like doing mobility for 30 minutes. And if you put a client through that, that's going to fatigue them so much. Their performance is going to be shit in the workout. Like, yeah, that's yeah. Tiring. yeah. And nobody look. Very few people <laughs> want to do 30 minutes of mobility yeah. unless you're just like a mobility person. Yeah. Right. So yeah. like, that's where you have to take whatever your passions are and what you want to do with training and kind of put it aside and say, okay, that's me. What does this person actually want and need to do? Yeah, exactly. hundred percent, man. Um, okay. Reactive. This is one of my favorite ones. Break that down for us. Yes, man. Reactive is just, I think of it like when you're going through your session, there's a bell curve right? So release reset readiness is kind of the ramping up of the bell curve and reactive. Your body should be warm. It should be fresh. It should feel ready to go. So now we're going to do whatever your most like neurologically taxing things are with regards to power and explosiveness. So, I mean, if I'm working with an athlete, this is where we're doing all their movement stuff. Uh, if it's a basketball player, we're working on straight ahead speed, first step. We're working on shuffling, hip turning, whatever they need to do to be successful on, on the court. Right. So we may be working on those actual skills and movements. It could be jumps. It could be throws. Uh, if you're more just on the weights into the spectrum, maybe this is your Olympic lifts, but this is where we get after it. And you know, you and I kind of alluded to this up top, but like, I don't think this is exclusively for athletes. And this is something again, like 10 years ago, when I started saying everybody's an athlete, like I got clowned on a lot on the internet. And people are like, oh, so you're going to have your 50 pound overweight person doing box jumps? No, idiot. I'm not, <laughs> you know, but no, no, nobody's going to tell that person they can't swing a kettlebell or throw a medicine ball or slam a medicine ball or push a prowler explosively. Like there's all kinds of things that they can do. Mm -hmm. So I just think of it as, hey, like there's a certain cadence you use in the weight room, right? Unless you're doing something like very explosive, like a speed squat or a speed bench, something that's geared towards that. The weight room stuff is more of like uh, your low end torque, right? It's like your pickup truck work. Mm. This is your Ferrari work. So however you want to set it up and whatever your clients can do, throw that in there. And I think one of the things that's been interesting is, well, twofold. Number one, a lot of the people that hated on it before, like love it now. Like so many people <laughs> are championing this. So I find that really intriguing and I know who those people are, but it's like, okay, there's that, but also this is probably the most important thing. This is what people love about our gym. So when we've got a 70, 69, 70 year old woman who is like the fittest woman in her neighborhood by far, and she's carrying 50 pound bags of rocks to her garden because she loves to garden. Like she loves being the strongest, most athletic woman on her block. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's like your gym pop people love this stuff. They love pushing prowlers, dragging sleds, uh, doing farmer's carries, throwing medicine balls, when appropriate, doing box jumps. Like they love that stuff because it's not, it's just way more organic. Yeah. I think is the best way to put it. Like sometimes in the gym, you're kind of calculating, am I in the right position with that stuff? It's more free flowing. It's more organic. It's playful. So like our, our gen pop people absolutely love that stuff. Yeah. It's huge, man. I mean, this is, this is a very random story, but I, I thought about, 
my wife gives me shit because I translate everything to like training adaptations and shit. But uh, when my daughter was really young, she, we were at the, we were getting one of her shots, like when she was like an infant. They had her on the bed and there's two nurses and both of the nurses just turned to go back to the shelf and like left her up there and she just went to roll. And I like leaped across and caught her with one <laughs> hand like a football and like literally scooped her yeah. up. And the nurses, you could tell, like, they looked at us like we fucked up. And I, I didn't, right. didn't say anything. Shannon was, like, so scared. But I immediately am, sure. like, that's that's what I train for. That's reactiveness. I haven't yeah. had to be that reactive ever since. But <laughs> something happens. I can jump and do it because I'm doing med ball throws and slams and bounds and shit like that in the gym all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and with our clients, and you could probably test this, too. Number one, people enjoy feeling like athletes, whether they were yes. or were yes. not once upon a time. They, it just feels really cool, you know? So if you can do something explosive, I yes. think it's important. Um, and I've noticed a, a neurological effect from it. It's almost, to me, like supercharging, right? So if somebody's doing a bench press that day, if we do a med ball throw for some sets before and we like take breaks in between, let them be really explosive, they always do better on the bench. They feel better. They perform yeah. better. They lift heavier. And I'm pretty sure there is – it's kind of a, a post-activation potentiation but the reverse essentially correct yeah yeah i think there's just like this priming effect right like you just have the thing is you have to be careful with it in the sense that you don't want to fatigue somebody because i love Mm. to do this stuff but then like if i get a little overzealous myself by the time i get to my lift i'm like that's kind of gassed already (laughs) you know now granted i'm 43 so i don't have the same motor that i used to but like that's a big part of it like if you if you can be smart with the activities and keep the volume in check Absolutely. It almost works as it's like one part extended warm up. So you're, you're making very sure that they're warmed up and they're ready for session, the session. But then number two, like you said, there's this like priming neurological effect where their nervous system is just firing and ready to go. So I think that's really valid for sure. Yeah. And uh, I remember Tim saying this to me and, and this is how I've always coached it. I like, he always said, I don't care how heavy of a med ball you can throw. I care how hard you can throw a light med ball. And that's kind of like, I think Mike Boyle talked a lot about that too. Like you don't need some massive, like when we're talking about explosive work, people think of Olympic lifting and stuff like that, or like the highest box jump possible being explosive is being explosive. I think you probably get more benefit out of, especially if we're talking about fatigue, right? Taking a five to 10 pound med ball and just throwing the shit out of that thing. And it's way more fun. A a thousand percent. And you know, this is one of those things. I have so many thoughts where I'm like, I need to do a video on this. I need to shoot this for the gram. Sometimes it just. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But this is one of the most common mistakes I see people making in the gym. It's like, they're trying to chuck this 20 pound med ball. Like it's really hard to throw a 20 pound med ball hard, Yeah. right? Like that's a lot of mass versus, you know, for a lot of my clients, we're not going heavier than a 10 pound med ball. And uh, uh, honestly, for a lot of throws, we're like more in the four, six, eight range. Yeah. Cause I want them to feel explosive, right? If somebody needs to throw a two or four pound med ball to throw, to be fast and explosive and to feel that way, if I give them an eight, it just reinforces the fact that they feel slow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, it's kind of, it's like, it's almost too common sense, but so many times I see people just lumbering and they're like laboring to throw these med balls. It's like, man, this person's already slow. Like help them feel fast. Yeah. Train speed. and they will get faster. Yeah. 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 Actually trained to be fast. Yeah. And I think the, the thing there too is like if anybody listening has ever tried to throw a 20, I mean, they make like 40 pound metaballs, which I never understood, but um, unless you want to use it as like an Atlas stone when they start getting real, real heavy, I get yeah. it. But um, yeah. when you try to throw something like that, your form goes out the window yeah. and now you're not even training it properly anyway. So it's kind of yeah. one of this. No, you're literally at that point, any strategy to complete the task is valid. Yeah right? Screw efficiency. None of that stuff matters. It's like, Hey, I'm trying to do this thing and I'm going to do it however I can. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and that just goes to the point of, you said earlier, you know, like, uh, basically queuing people aren't going to think about your cues when they're on set or rep eight and they're gassed. Right. So training right. your body properly during these things allows your body to do it on command. And then you don't have to think about it. Um, which is super important. So moving into to the next one, which I think is going to be pretty self-explanatory as well resistance is this just yeah, compound man. lifting accessory work that's just your your meat yeah. potatoes yeah lift lift do things uh you know i i think one of the best compliments we got from one of our athletes a few years back he was going back to his team and you know he's just he was raving about us so i felt pretty good about myself you know he's like man 
iFast is amazing. You need to go. And the guy was like, well, what's so great about it? He's like, well, they just do the basics better than anybody I know. And he'd been to some good places. So like people want to see the 1000th hit bridge or glute bridge variation or the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 2000 ways to jack your arms up, but it's like <laughs> a lot of the foundational stuff like works like, and, and people think all we do, cause we, we do, we talk about resets and we talk about breathing and we talk about moving well, but like part of it is getting stronger and becoming more forceful, whether you're an athlete or a gin pop client, like just like athletes like to feel strong and fast and explosive, like our gin pop clients like to feel strong, right? And strong is a relative term. So what may be strong to you isn't strong to a power lifter and maybe way stronger than your 60, 70 or 80 year old gin pop client. But like, put some force into the ground, man, like mm-hmm. get strong. Like there's nothing wrong with that. And so that's something that I always try and impress upon people too. It's like, yeah, we do want you to move well. And yeah, we might cut your weights a little bit from what you're used to, because we're going to make sure you're doing things the right way and loading the right muscles. But yeah, at the end of the day, man, smart strength training cures a lot of ills. Mm-hmm. And smart and simple are usually parallel, right? I think uh, yeah, it was Dan John came in and gave a talk at, at when I was in college. And it was funny because it was about like programming and stuff. And he was yep. just like, push, pull, hip hinge, squat, carry something. And then it just was done. And, and like, we were all kind of like, <laughs> what? And then he, he, he elaborated on why, but he was like, that's really the basics of, of movement, right? Um, yeah. And it's true. It's funny. I was doing actually a consult today with a young trainer, and we were going over some of his programs and stuff. And he pulled up the, the next program, and he was like, I, I hate this one. And I was like, what? And he was like, tell me why it was just, like, too simple, and the exercise selection was, was bad. And I was like, this is the best program you've shown me today. Because (laughs) you're not overthinking it. It's simple. There's clear progressions. Like you're going through the fundamental movement patterns. balanced. This is great. Like too many people just romanticize it and try to make it almost too fancy, which again, sometimes complex stuff is great, but simplifying is good. Well, look, because simple doesn't sell, right? Mm -hmm. In this day and age, the more complex I can make something sound, the smarter I can sound, the more stuff I can sell you. Yeah. Right? So that's why... You know, Dan John writes books and like, it's, it's brilliant. It's like, it's so basic, but at the same time, he's not out there selling you his $2,000 a month mentorship course on how to, how to write the most complex programs on the planet. Right. Like a lot of the stuff that works is incredibly simple. It's incredibly basic. It's just the, the right things done at the right time with the right volume and intensity and done repeatedly and consistently. Yeah. It's like, it's not sexy, but it's what works. Yeah. I've learned, uh, I've had to study marketing way more as my business grew because of that exact thing. Cause we weren't selling anything overly sexy or fad or anything. It was like just honest <laughs> coaching and it yes. was like, Oh shit. Okay. Now I have to actually get clever with marketing to convince people that this is actually the way you need to go. You should commit for longer. Yes. You should repeat the same stuff over and over again. You should keep it pretty basic for a while. Like it's funny right. how those things work. Um, I, lo- I love that. Uh, resiliency, you said, was metabolic conditioning, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Fill us in on uh, what you guys typically do and also the importance of this. I think a lot of people, um, and I, I get it, prioritize strength work. Um, I prioritize yep. strength work. But a lot of people just neglect conditioning completely. Where, yep. like, Why is this so beneficial? How does it translate to strength training? Why should people be doing it? Yeah, so I think... I think the conditioning piece is really important and you've met Joel over the years, right? Jameson. Yeah. We just did a podcast together actually. Yeah. So like Joel's the man. And I, I'd like to tell people, man, before I met Joel, I was either uh, a no conditioning kind of guy, go play your sport kind of guy or 30 on 90 off glycolytic intervals. Like that was, that was about all I knew about conditioning, but yeah, I think it's such an important piece. And like, if we've learned nothing else over the last 10 to 15 years, is the power and the need to have a robust aerobic energy system. Like for years, there were like the memes before memes were really a thing. There were the memes of, do you want to look like this? And it's like a frail marathon yeah, runner. Yeah. And then like the Jack sprinter. That one uh, dude that he had like braids and he was just that, that African sprinter. He was so jacked. I saw him on so many articles. I think I used him in an article literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, without realizing like, Oh wait, like all these incredibly fit basketball players, like, uh, soccer players, like they all have muscles and they're shredded and they have like 
healthy aerobic energy systems too, mm-hmm. right? So like, this is something we're always trying to push with our, our clients and our athletes, you know, whether it's doing some stuff at the end of your session and we still do high intensity stuff. Uh, we may not use like that work to rest ratio. We're not going 30 on 90 off anymore, but Hey, let's go eight on 40 off or eight on 50 off or 10 on 50 off. So we're getting that a lactic aerobic kind of training effect. So you're getting the high intensity stuff. You're getting the heart rate up. Uh, you're getting the aerobic energy system working in the background uh, to, to kind of refuel and replenish those energy stores to bring the heart rate back, heart rate and the breath rate back down. So that's how we do a lot of stuff where sometimes it's like, hey, look, just hop on this, this spin bike and, and you know, flush yourself out for 10 or 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Like there's value in that too. Like if you just had a heavy leg day, you know, you're going to be sore the next day. Yeah. So why not take some precautionary steps metabolically to kind of flush some of that out, kickstart the recovery process. Like you just feel better. So, you know, it just depends on what the person's goals are. Um, Sometimes it's very general in nature. Sometimes if it's more fat loss, you know, we'll start with some of those like short duration uh, work ratios or, or work sets. And, and we'll get into glycolytic stuff. Like we've got the whole arsenal if we need it, but I think so many people just skip over that. Yeah. Right. And I think ultimately a lot of people get into their forties and fifties and they realize, Oh wait, like disease is a thing. Yeah. Like you feel bulletproof for a long time. And then you're like, Oh man, this person I know just had a heart attack or this person I have has, you know, these comorbidities now it's like, uh, I should probably do some things that are just going to improve my general health and well-being. And I think Joel showed something along the lines of like endurance trained people live on average like eight years longer wow. than pair matched people. So like just doing regular aerobic work could potentially give you eight more years on your life. Like that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. huge. I think one thing I learned from him was just that and the effect on like the immune system and like, yeah, it's a lot more, I mean, strength training is great. Don't get me wrong. It's, you're going to get benefits, but there's benefits that aerobic training is going to give you that, that are a little bit stronger in those realms. And then also the fact of, uh, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, like just recovery improving. If you develop your aerobic and your energy systems, your ability to reproduce energy and recover between reps, sets, days of training, all that kind of stuff improves. And if you do that, you actually could probably get stronger and build more muscle. So then I started kind of really, you know, tying two to two together. And I mean, like you said, even if you look at fucking CrossFitters, right? They, I mean, I don't think we need to go to that extreme, anybody listening, but some of them are monsters. They're jacked beyond, and they do a lot of cardio. So I think we can kind of put that, you know, to rest at this point. Absolutely. And this is something that like, when it comes down to it, if you do stupid stuff in the weight room, like you're not going to get results, right? Just like if you do stupid stuff with your conditioning, you're not going to see results. Mm -hmm. There's a system to it, right? So you alluded to CrossFit. I think the best CrossFitters probably have really good programs. Like there's probably a couple idiots that are just jacked out of their mind and could do anything. And yeah, you see that in, in every sport, right? Yeah. Somebody that's a total idiot with their training, but they're just really good. Like that's fine. But there's probably a large section of them, and I could be totally wrong, but there's probably a large section of them that have really sound SNC programs, really sound conditioning programs that allow them to get to that level, right? They're not just like, shotgun approach doing all of the things all the time yeah like they're really smart and intelligent about how they set up their programs and again that's an assumption but i would think you know there's ways to do that you just have to be smart about how you approach it yeah i interviewed noah olson on here and he he plays in the podium this last one and um he was explaining his training and he usually trains two or three times a day and it's broken up. So it's not just like a, a wad where he's doing everything in a session. It's like a, an intentional right. session with periodization and then a break, food, maybe a nap, another session, right. which it's crazy. He's an athlete, so he gets paid to train. But the yeah. point is, like you said, it's, it's methodical. Um, yeah. One of my good buddies, Jason Brown, had a, he said something that I've always quoted and it was a random, I think he said random training equals random results. And it's like, that's yeah. dead on. Like you said, you have to yeah. have a system. Um, and that's an R that we want to avoid. <laughs> so yeah, uh, absolutely. the last R in this list, uh, and then we'll wrap it up because we're almost at an hour. So this actually worked out, ended up being perfect, but uh, recovery, which is, yeah. I mean, again, a neglected one, but probably one of the most important. So whenever I do this talk and I talk about R7, I always try and impress upon people. Like some of this stuff is probably going to sound really familiar. Most of this stuff, I guarantee you're already doing. 
But if you're not focused on R2 and R7, those sections alone, getting those consistently in your workouts will be worth the price of admission. Mm -hmm. So I think of R2 is, hey, let's set a better biomechanical position for you to go in the gym and train, right? It's like tuning up your car before, whether it's a drag strip, you know, and you're going to hit the gas or you're going to go out and you run for three hours. Like you want your car to be aligned and moving efficiently, right? And that's reset for people listening, R2. Yep. Yep. So now I think of recovery as more of a just kind of like a neurological phenomenon, right? I want these people to chill out and relax. Like imagine you just took somebody through like the most killer session of all time, right? Like their heart rates up, they're feeling great. They're high five and everybody. Yeah, that was awesome. The problem is like their sympathetic nervous system is just on overdrive right now, right? Their heart rates up, their breath rates up, which means they're not in a good state to actually recover which is what we need, right? Because now that that session's over, I don't need them and their body to continue to respond like they're in a session for the next 24 hours. The sooner I can get them to chill out, relax, that kickstarts the recovery process. So you could talk to all the nutrition stuff, right? And all the good things that happen when they become more parasympathetic. But I think of my last job before they leave is, hey, look, what can we do before they walk out of this gym to chill out, relax, and kickstart this recovery process? So sometimes it's as simple as, hey, I'm going to have you lay on your back, put your feet up on this wall. I'm going to set a timer next to you for three minutes. All I want you to do, close your eyes, breathe. When it beeps, you're done. Anything you can do to just try and get them to chill out and relax from a nervous system perspective kickstarts the recovery process. So now if they're more relaxed, they're already doing all those things to kickstart the recoveries from a metabolic perspective, from a neurological perspective on your end, right? They start refueling. They can actually absorb those nutrients, mm-hmm. right? Like all kinds of good stuff happens. So that's why the recovery piece to me is such a big component of the puzzle. It's like, Hey man, you've got to start chilling out, especially if you train like late at night. Yeah. That's a really big one. Cause you see people that are like, Oh man, I can only train after work. Well, they train really hard at seven, eight o'clock at night. Now they can't fall asleep till like 11, 12, 1 a.m. You got to get up at six. Like that's really negatively impacting your recovery. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's such a big piece of the puzzle. Yeah. I always tell people like for stuff like this, if you don't have time or if you're skipping this, it's basically like saying you're, you're too busy driving to stop and get gas when you're on. (laughs) Right. You got to stop or else you're not going to go for very long. Um, You know, and just to, add the diet piece into that because you, you kind of mentioned something. There's actually research that shows when we are in that fight or flight, that adrenaline state, our sympathetic nervous system is going, our body is sending blood to the limbs. That's how yeah, we move and run exactly. and everything. Not to the gut in order to digest. So right. if you're not doing this, but you're rushing home to get your post-workout meal, which we know you don't have to get immediately anyway, we've debunked that. Like you're kind of, right. it, you know, missing the forest for the trees here. So, um, and that's just 10 minutes. Literally just lay there for 10 minutes. Like that's, that's a pretty easy thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and honestly, like we try and make everything as simple as possible. So like, like you, a lot of our people are like, oh, I got 60 minutes. Okay. Well, we can do all seven of these R's in 60 minutes. How do we do that? Well, maybe you're not going to breathe for 10 minutes, but I'll tell them, Hey, look, give me three minutes and I want 10 full inhales, full exhales, Mm -hmm. pause at the end, like work to control the breath. Right. So again, in R2, in that reset, we're trying to drive air into a certain space, whatever. Here, we're just trying to uh, decrease the breath rate. Right. And we're trying to take longer in between breaths. So maybe at the start, it's it's very shallow because you just exerted yourself. But by the end, it should be a nice full inhale. Nice full exhale. Get it all out. Once it's all out, trying to pause three to five seconds in between breaths just really trying to control that breath rate at the end. And you find, man, when people do that, I've had people where they're like killing themselves in the session and they do this for like three minutes. And by the end of three minutes, they're about ready to fall asleep. (laughs) Yeah. Cause it's the first time they've actually chilled out and relaxed all day. Yeah. So tells me something's working. Yeah. And for those of you who have insomnia and can't fall asleep, give this a shot. That'll do it. It actually, it does. It really does work. So (laughs) yeah, give it a shot. Um, Man, Mike, this has been great. The I think the, again, I said at the beginning, the R7 system helped me a lot in my career, but it's just something that 
it's simple, but it's nice when people can learn why these little things are so important because they're either A, skipping them, or B, they neglect them because they don't think they're that important because they're simple. But just because they're yeah. simple doesn't mean they're not important. So um, this has been great, man. Thank you for, for coming on and sharing your knowledge. I, I want to make sure we give you a chance to shout out everywhere that you have content. If you have any like certification stuff that you recommend or anything like that at all, please yeah. drop it all now so everybody can hear. Yeah. So I always tell people, depending on where we're at in our relationship, uh, I got one of two options, right? Like if you just want free stuff, you want to learn more about me, you want to learn more about what I do, robertsontrainingsystems.com, best place to do it. Literally thousands of pieces of content between articles, podcasts, uh, videos, like I've done content for, I don't know, like 15, 18 years now. So yeah. there's plenty of content there. So if you just want to learn more about me and what I do, robertsontrainingsystems.com is the place. Uh, if you like what I do, if you want to learn more about it, you're a trainer, coach, completecoachcertification.com is the cert that I basically created. Uh, I feel like there's a big gap in between what is currently being taught at almost every level um, in our field and what actually works in a gym. Because I don't care if you know 30 cues on how to coach somebody to back squat. If a back squat isn't the right exercise, mm. most places don't give you an alternative. So the, the complete coach cert is all about, hey, this is practical in the trenches stuff. Like what, what do you do when somebody can't get in the right position? having progressions, regressions, different coaching cues, having programming templates to help you get started. Because look, like there's a lot of information out there. And if you don't have a filter, it's very hard to understand like who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't. So yeah. uh, those two places are the absolute best places to get started with me. And hey man, wherever you choose to start, uh, I would love to connect. So go to one of those two and uh, let's see what we can do for you. Love it, man. I'm going to put all that in the description of this podcast for you guys listening. Um, and again, I, I back everything because like I said, I've, I've known him for quite a while now and I started learning from him almost a decade ago, literally, which is just so cool to find you have you on the podcast after all this time. Yeah. So um, cannot recommend his stuff enough. At least go check out the content. Like he said, it's a blog that I visit as well. Not enough people read blogs anymore because they're so focused yeah. on social media, but if you really want to learn that's where people go to really learn. That's why we at the uh, Taylor Coach, we still put out blogs all the time too because it's just so valuable. It's good information. It's long form. So um, cannot stress that enough, guys. And Mike, thank you for, for spending time with me, man. It's been a pleasure. This is amazing, Cody. Thanks so much, brother.